MPN Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello, and welcome to the MPN Hub Podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Laura Michaelis and Dr. Anand Patel of Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, USA. Thank you, everybody. This I'm Laura Michaels. I'm one of the leukemia specialists at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I'm here to do this podcast on the MPN Roundtable with a colleague, Anand Patel, at the University of Chicago. Dr. Patel, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Laura. Um, so my name is Anand Patel. I am part of the Leukemia and Myeloid Malignancy Group at the University of Chicago, uh, and I also serve as the medical director of our inpatient leukemia service. It's a joy to talk to you today. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about on this roundtable for, in particular for our referring physicians and also for some of the patients that listen to this, is that the question of when a clinical trial is the right thing to choose for a patient. And focusing on folks with either primary myelofibrosis or myelofibrosis that has arisen after polycythemia vera or essential thrombocythemia, I wanted to ask you, when do you think about a clinical trial for these patients rather than, for example, choosing a standard of care choice of a already FDA approved and dosing uh, approved um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor like, or uh, JAK inhibitor, uh, like, for example, ruxolitinib, fedratinib, um, picritinib, for example. Yeah. And uh, Laura, as you just alluded to, we we are in a time where, where the landscape of approved therapies for myelofibrosis is, is thankfully expanding. Uh, so we now have three JAK inhibitors uh, that are approved for, for higher risk myelofibrosis, uh, we have ruxolitinib, uh, which has been around for over a decade at this point, uh, fedratinib, uh, which was approved within the last couple of years, and pacritinib, which was approved in the in the last year. Um, and in patients with um, higher risk myelofibrosis, uh, whose blood counts are fairly well preserved, and by that I mean uh, a platelet count of over 100,000 uh, and, and ideally a hemoglobin of, of uh, over 9 or 10, uh, really, uh, consideration for for ruxolitinib or, or fedratinib would be very reasonable. Uh, pacritinib uh, was specifically studied in patients with a low platelet count. Uh, so in patients that are presenting with a low platelet count, uh, use of pacritinib right off the bat is, uh, is, very, uh, is very reasonable as well. Now, we have long-term data uh, of how patients with myelofibrosis do on ruxolitinib uh, we're still kind of collecting that sort of long-term data for, for these other approved JAK inhibitors. But one thing that we know is if you follow patients for, for five years or beyond um, on ruxolitinib, at that five-year mark, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of them will have stopped ruxolitinib for one reason or another. And I think that speaks to the fact that, that while we have effective JAK inhibitor therapies, there is room to improve upon those outcomes, even in patients that have not yet been treated for their myelofibrosis. Um, and, and on that kind of, in that vein, uh, there are several studies ongoing um, that are looking at what we call combination approaches. So using a JAK inhibitor and then adding on uh, a novel drug right off the bat uh, when it comes to someone with a new diagnosis of myelofibrosis. Yeah, the... Um... The, I think one thing to think about when you're looking at a newly diagnosed patient is, um, so what my standard of care might be either picritinib, ruxolitinib, fedratinib, and then 
is the add-on, like, does the add-on option apply to my patient in particular? So I think one of the unmet needs at this time, although perhaps this will change in the near future, is patients that present with primary myelofibrosis and significant anemia, for example. And one of the things I think that it's most attractive in a newly diagnosed PMF patient who is anemic and perhaps symptomatic from that anemia or even transfusion dependent is a combination study that might add on an agent that's hoping to alleviate some of that anemia in some way, shape, or form. So that's when I think about my newly diagnosed patient population, the first group I always try and find a, a study for rather than using the standard of care is that patient with anemia. I think there's a little bit more flexibility in terms now with the approval of pacritinib about a newly diagnosed patient who's got thrombocytopenia, but that cytopenic myofibrosis patient, I consider really for a clinical trial upfront, as opposed to, like you mentioned, somebody who's very cythemic. The other thing is that I think um, we should be considering patients, again, for clinical trials, when they're highly symptomatic. I think we've had great symptom response with, for example, uh, ruxolitinib and the others that have used the SAF as part of their outcomes. But I do think that um, some symptoms um, are a little bit more resistant. And I, I have noticed that sometimes those add-on studies can address symptoms that the drug alone didn't. It's important also, as you point out, that a lot of the trials that are being done now can be done when people on a stable dose of a JAK inhibitor, but with inadequate response. And so again, when you're shopping for trials for your patient, think about, is this patient really optimized? Are the counts where I want them? Are their symptoms better? Has their spleen improved? Are they feeling as good as we think that they can feel? And if the answer to that is no, look at some of the response criteria for the and the eligibility criteria for those studies and see is an add-on the right thing to do. And then I think we get to the other question of when is it time to jump ship from a, a JAK inhibitor and move to an agent that works in an entirely different way? And sometimes that's in a clinical trial and sometimes that's about moving to immunotherapy in the form of transplant. And, you know, our, our center does a lot of uh, transplants for myelofibrosis. And um, one of the questions is, what's that trigger point to move somebody? And uh, especially because, you know, we know at this point in time, it's really the only curative uh, treatment. But we also know that with novel therapies coming down the pike, we don't, we can't always predict overall survival for people because, our mechanisms per, for predicting survival are based on historic treatment rather than contemporary treatment. So how do you go through picking, am I going to put somebody who's maybe resistant to, to a JAK inhibitor or not really doing so well on a JAK inhibitor? Do you put them into transplant even before then? Do you think about transplant at that point, or do you still prioritize a clinical trial over transplant for somebody who may have inadequate response to first-line JAK inhibition? Yeah, it's it's a great question, Lauren. I think one of the most not an easy uh, one. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most most pressing and and uh, you know 
one of the questions that I think we battle with on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. certainly when we're seeing patients in clinic and talking to colleagues that that take care of patients with MPNs. And the first thing uh, I'll say is I, I don't think you're ever wrong about counseling patient regarding transplant uh, and referring to a transplant center if they have higher risk myelofibrosis. And, and you know, we have a number of prognostic scoring systems. Uh, there's the DIPSS plus along with several molecular scoring systems that have kind of developed. And, and in general, patients that, that tend to have either intermediate or, or higher risk by, by any of those uh, scoring systems, uh, I think merit at least a conversation regarding transplant. And I think that's something that that should be done and, and I think uh, is very helpful uh, for patients to kind of get a sense of what transplant would entail, what the risks and the benefits are, uh, and also ultimately if, if they would be an appropriate candidate for transplant based on their other medical conditions. Agree, especially because I think we're learning that transplant needs to happen when the comorbidities are at their at, are low rather than higher. So I agree with that early referral at a minimum for a, for a conversation. I'm sorry, yeah, go on, I introduced you. No, that you're, you're totally fine. And, uh, and I, when it comes to transplant and myelofibrosis, I really think of it as a, as a, as a Goldilocks problem where you're really looking for that just right window where if someone's feeling well, uh, minimal symptoms, their spleen is not, uh, all that enlarged, uh, and they have higher risk myelofibrosis, uh, that may not be the right time to actually move forward with the transplant, even if a consultation has happened. On the other hand, in patients who have uh, very large spleens, uh, uh, they've already been treated with something like a JAK inhibitor. Perhaps they've even been on a clinical trial and the spleen is not kind of reduced in the the way that we would like. Uh, They're incredibly symptomatic from their myelofibrosis. It very well could be that, that for that specific patient at that time, the risks of transplants now far outweigh the benefit. So it's it's kind of a uh, a little bit of a a window of transplant where you aren't thinking about necessarily um, having someone go to transplant too early. And I think one of the things that all of these novel agents that are being uh, investigated in myelofibrosis in the context of clinical trials, in my mind, I think of them as as things that have widened the window. So having that ability, uh, if someone did not have uh, uh, the response that you were looking for on a JAK inhibitor to think about, is there an add-on trial where, where a novel drug could be added to that JAK inhibitor or what we call monotherapy trials, meaning the JAK inhibitor is stopped and a, and a new drug is what's what's used in the context of a clinical trial. I think those sorts of approaches have have um, opened up that window a little wider in terms of when the right time would be to, to ultimately move forward with a transplant for a patient. Yeah, I agree. The other thing to keep in mind also is that transplant requires not only that your spleen be small, but also that your lungs work, that your liver works, that you're not, um, you know, in particular, I think we're sometimes miss some of the, we think about the spleen a lot, but I think in myelofibrosis, we sometimes miss some of the other aspects of the disease, the the other impacts it can have, pulmonary hypertension, for example, um, problems with your your liver if you've had a splenic clot or something like that. So um, you have to be careful that the, you're not missing those when you're evaluating. And sometimes, unfortunately, those kind of complications can make you ineligible for trials as well as ineligible for transplant. Um, anyway, it's just a, it's a very, a disease that has um, 
an impact on the entire organism, even though we tend to think of it as having an impact just on the marrow, the blood, and the spleen. Um, what do you think about phase one trials? Um, when you're thinking about them, what's your what's your thought process? It's probably bigger than just myelofibrosis, but yeah, uh, you know, I think it's very important. Um, whether it be for a referring physician or a patient to really have a sense of what the goals of, of a phase one trial uh, are. And generally speaking, and this can vary slightly from trial to trial, um, generally speaking, when we're thinking about phase one trials, we're thinking about uh, a drug that has shown promising activity uh, either in small numbers of patients or, or perhaps in what we call preclinical studies, uh, meaning studies that have been done in models of the disease, but, but not yet actually been done in, in human patients. And we're trying to determine the right dose of that medication and that it's a safe medication. We certainly will be looking to see if there are any signs of what we call efficacy, meaning is there any impact on the disease itself? But oftentimes that's thought of as an exploratory or secondary objective, meaning the, the first and foremost uh, goal of a phase one study is really to get the right dose and make sure it's not, uh, it's not uh, too toxic for a patient. Generally speaking, when thinking about um, phase one studies, those sorts of studies typically make sense uh, when standard therapies have been used and are ineffective. And really you're at a, at a time point where there are not other um, standard therapies available and there are not um, clinical trials that are in the later phases of development available. So uh, we call phase two studies, which are really focused on the effectiveness of the drug. Uh, and then phase three studies where we compare our, our novel or investigational drug to the current standard of care and, and try to really definitively show that, that it is uh, more impactful than our current standard of care. So really that's, that's when I think about phase one studies, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Lauren. Yeah, no, I mean, you've summed it up agree, uh, exactly. I, I try and make sure I'm really clear with patients um, that home runs are great, um, but not every phase one trial is going to be a home run. And often we have to be careful about what dose they're going to be on or and how much um uh, sort of what what the what the overall goals are of the study so my approach is exactly aligned with yours in terms of really hoping um hoping for either a later phase study or the standard of care except in patients who've exhausted those options so well, this has been delightful. Thank you so much, Dr. Anand Patel from the University of Chicago, and uh, really appreciate the chance to talk to you today about when a clinical trial is the right thing for an MPN patient. Thanks so much, Laura. Uh, I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for listening to the MPN Hub podcast. We would also like to thank our supporters, Bristol Myers Squibb, AppV, CTI, Novartis, and Cartos Therapeutics. MPN Hub Podcasts. Brought to you by Scientific Education Support.